Hello, faithful listeners, new listeners, and anyone who's accidentally clicked on the wrong link. Welcome to another episode of the Madam's Cast, all about foraging, food, people, and the planet. And something weird must be going on out there in the ethereal world of the internet because people have started writing to me asking to come on the podcast or more accurately recommending other people that they think would make good guests for the podcast. That's brilliant because that just makes my life easier and it makes the show more interesting because it gives us a broader angle of uh, capture for, for interesting folk doing interesting things within the world of food or at least with an opinion about things going on in that arena. So today I have something of a first, um, not a first for the show in terms of a distiller, but a first for the show in terms of a whiskey distiller. And not only that, but a whiskey distiller not based in Scotland. And before you say it, also not based in Ireland. Or, and also it's not the Welsh one. So here we go. Um, I'm gonna find out if he's there, down the magic of the internet. Uh, David Thompson, are you there? I am indeed, Tim. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm very well. I'm very well. And David, you uh, you are the, the creative genius behind the spirit of Yorkshire distillery. Is that right? Well, yes. Myself and my business partner, Tom Meller. Yeah, we, um, <laughs> we, we sort of came about it in a very strange way, really. Um, really, we're friends first and foremost. And uh, Tom's, Tom's the farmer. He has 600 acres um, of arable land up on the East Yorkshire um, wolds. And uh, it really came about a friendship where we, um, I just moved back into the area and I, I was buying and selling agricultural produce. Um, that's what I was trying to do. And, and he was one of my first clients really. And that's how we met. Um, but we also met on the rugby field against each other. <laughs> and uh, I guess he was suitably impressed enough to, um, to ask me to come and play for his team. So. We met on the field, I suppose, and work, and uh, yeah, we, we've we've been friends ever since. Yeah, that was a destined connection to be made, wasn't it? Definitely. Yeah, I think so. Um, and yeah, and our wives have got on and never stopped talking. So um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, it's it's been great. We've seen our families grow up together, and and you know, the, the you always say you shouldn't work with friends, but um, we set out to try and prove that wrong. And um, you know, we're now seven or eight years in, and uh, yeah. I could, I could safely say we haven't had an argument yet. Yeah, I think the um, I think the grain of wisdom in that idea of not working with friends is you need to be able to be very honest, blunt, and have difficult conversations with the people you work with. But then I always think if you can't have difficult, blunt, and honest conversations with your friends, you're not really that good a friend. <laughs> Well, true, and I call it poking the bruises. You know, there are always bruises in business, and um, you know you've got problems to solve. But I think also you've got to recognise your strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, Tom is very practical. He's he's, uh, he's obviously been farming, well, not obviously to your <laughs> listeners, but he's been farming for uh, all of his life, and and you know three generations prior to him uh, on the same farm. So, you know, his skills as a farmer um, are second to none, and and my sort of, I suppose, education in, in agriculture was, was I worked on a farm for three or four years before I went to uh, university and, and came back and, and started to deal with farmers, which actually wasn't a thankful task, I have to say. Um, <laughs> the, hard, the hard guys to deal with. But, you know, Tom was a true gentleman, you know, and um, yeah, we got on very well from day one, really. Um, and we're able to talk about 
all sorts of issues that, that come across with the business. And I think it's a very healthy you know, relationship we've created. Okay, well, look, well, I'm going to take you back one step because I always like to do this to people at the beginning of the Madam's Cast. Uh, I realise that we've dived straight in here, which is fantastic, <laughs> and we've got a, a sort of mid-portion of your story going on, which, I've got, which I quite like. Um, I'm feeling a little bit like Tom should be on the other line, uh, but maybe we'll get him next time and see if he concurs with everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The direction that you see it in. Um, <clears throat> so you went to university. What happened before that? Obviously, you were born and raised a Yorkshire lad. I was, yeah. I was, I was born in Skipton, actually. So Yorkshire's a big old county, yeah. um, and I was born um, almost the, the west, furthest west you could go, probably settle a bit further in Yorkshire. Um, and then we moved over to the east coast um, into the sort of Driffield area, uh, which is a very agricultural uh, grain area. As my dad worked in the industry as well. Um, so I, I sort of grew up in that area, uh, played a lot of rugby in that area and, and tennis and all sorts of sports and um, decided I would follow along in my sort of dad's footsteps really and, and be educated in agriculture. So I, I worked on a farm, a mixed farm for four years and uh, went to, to university to do uh, agricultural marketing or actually merchanting at the time it was called. So really the supply industry, so buying, selling um, inputs and, and, and buying the produce uh, that was grown in this area, which predominantly was, was malting barley. Um, and I, I can describe why that was in this area, really, because we've got some of the best malting barley land um, probably in the UK. Uh, we've got three of the biggest malting companies based around here for that reason, you know. Okay. Um, and it's to do with the soil type, and it's been absolutely perfect for growing a low nitrogen malting barley. Okay, and that's going. That was traditionally for the brewing industry, or forward on to into the distillation industry as well. Oh, very much both. Um, so okay. obviously, Yorkshire known for its beers, but but mm-hmm. um, you know, probably fifty percent, sixty percent of of the malt that is used to make Scotch would be grown in this sort of area. Um, so we were exporting our our premium malting barley uh, across the board for, for literally um, centuries. Oh, quite right too, quite right too. Okay, <laughs> <Absolutely>. so, <laughs> okay, so spin forward a few years and where do we find you? So, yeah, uh, well, it was a conversation. Tom, Tom started a brewery on the farm in, in the early 2000s um, when agriculture was probably going through a phase of, of not being particularly profitable. It, you know, particularly if you're an arable farmer, you were struggling to sort of make ends meet. And, and a lot of farms were diversifying into different different uh, industries, whether it be you know, making cheese or, or ice cream with your dairy herds or, or you know, cottages for, for, for renting out on the, on the farm. Yeah. And, and Tom had two of the main sort of ingredients to make beer. Uh, which was um, obviously the malting barley he had on the farm, but also a, a borehole with his own water. So um, the water is ne- uh, has never been supplied as a main supply to the farm. It's always been through a borehole. So those two ingredients made him think, okay, let's let's look at beer, and um, and start in 2003 with a very small um, production, and since then has grown into quite a major uh, business now. Um, so um, that was, if you like, the stepping stone into whiskey, um, because really all whiskey is is distilled beer. So the first part of that process we had the knowledge of, but clearly we need to learn how to distill. Right. Well, hang on a minute. Let's not let's not rush past that point. What's the brewery <laughs> called? 
The brewery is called Wold Top Brewery. So the Wold is, is as I say, the land that we, we farm around here. So um, Wold Top being very high up on the Wolds. Um, and uh, yeah, they've been producing beer for, for a lot of years and, and have numerous amounts of, of beer throughout uh, the UK and export as well. So yeah, it's been a very successful business. Happy days. But then you got together and went, hold the phone a minute. <laughs> <laughs> there's, an obvious, there's an obvious next step here yeah missing a trick so yeah research who's done whiskey in Yorkshire before there must be somebody uh, actually there wasn't so that was a big tick in the box um, nobody's actually produced whiskey so we thought why um, is there a problem why why is it possibly not been done before so um, we looked into that and uh, there was no reasons um, we just thought that we needed some expertise though. We didn't know how to do it. So we employed a guy called Dr. Jim Swan, who was absolutely fantastic in terms of his knowledge of how to set up distilleries um, and being connected to a lot of other uh, newish distilleries in the UK and abroad. So um, he was our mentor in the early days. Oh, fascinating. That's interesting, isn't it? That um, although all that malting barley was being grown there, and presumably being grown there historically, even at a sort of smaller scale, as you said, for hundreds of years, that no one had ever thought, do you know what, let's do this ourselves. <laughs> yeah, it was very odd, um, and we couldn't believe it either. Um, and, and I don't know, and the history of, of, I suppose, malt has always been Scottish, and I think a lot of people think that's because that's where the raw materials were. Well, well to be honest, everybody's got water, and everybody's you know, got, got malting barley. And in fact, up hang until on a minute, recently, hang on a minute. Oh. <laughs> not everybody's got the Spey Valley, okay? And not everyone's got the, the Murray Coast, all right? Let's just, you know, you're going to be fiercely proud about where you live. I know you are. So am I. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and there's no doubt they've done a cracking job with making uh, the product uh, as it is today, a fantastic export uh, product, but, and, and enjoyed throughout the UK. But you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, does it matter where you are? Well, if you're a Scot, it does. If you're a Yorkshire man, it does. <laughs> um, and I mean, as I say, we've got very, very low food miles because the barley we grow on the farm is the barley we put into the bottle of whiskey. Um, and not many people can actually claim that. What happens to your spent grain? Um, so we use that uh, for um, cattle feed. Um, okay. So everything really in the production process is, is, is not wasted. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's common in the, in the industry to use um, brewer's grains or spent grains for, for incorporation to cattle feed. That's amazing. I'm loving your story. And then here's the thing for me, though. I mean, it's a heck of an investment, isn't it? Because what are you looking at? A minimum of 10 years before your whiskey's ready? For those of you out there who don't know, obviously, whiskey, new make spirit, is then aged in wood, usually yep. oak. Very often that's been used for something else before whether that's a sherry or a, yeah. a bourbon cask or a you know a french oak cask for you know uh, wine whatever it was um you know it takes a long time to make that spirit taste of the cask and and to get it right and to allow that you know enough of the spirit to kind of strengthen up to cast strength with the loss of the angel share so i uh, you know who, uh, I mean, did, were you lucky? Did you not have to get backing or did they just have a good long view? <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. The route to entry is, is very, very difficult. And, and we asked ourselves why it hadn't been done in Yorkshire before. That was probably the main reason, the, the actual cost of getting set up and started. 
Um, but bearing in mind that, that half the production is, is making beer, uh, we'd already got that infrastructure in place. So mm. that was a big tick in the box. Um, notwithstanding the fact that uh, having to wait for your product for three years before you can sell it as whiskey is completely bonkers uh, as a business model. Um, and, and not knowing uh, what it's going to be like to a degree uh, is also uh, a bit crazy. But, but, that, but that is the thing that's really excited us, you know, because we were sort of um, going out there and doing something different. You know, the unknown is as exciting as what you do know. And, uh, you know, that, that fired us up even more to, to, to push on with the project. Um, in terms of funding, it, it's basically we've managed to do it ourselves. Um, and that is quite unusual as well, because a lot of businesses out there in early, early years have to crowdfund and, and go out for finance. Um, and, you know, not to say that we've got pots of money kicking about. We've had to put everything into it. You know, it's very still risky, but, but we're really excited now that we've got to a point where we've got whiskey selling around the world. So, you know, it, it was a gamble worth taking. That is amazing. That is, you know, I, I, I love these. I love these journeys. You know, whenever you talk to a food producer, there's always, you know, it doesn't matter what level that's, that, that's at. They either have the passion in their voice that you have or they're knackered. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to hear your story and, and bringing that all the way through. So, um, you know, we, we can talk about it again a bit later and I'll stick it in the show notes. But what, where's the best place to get hold of your, your gear? Um, do you do a gin as well for those people that don't <laughs> drink whiskey? I suspect you probably do. And, um, you know, do you, can, you, can you still post it out for us? Right. Okay. I'll start with the, the, the gin thing. Um, we are hundred percent field to bottle and that means that every grain we plant, and I'll talk about the farming side of it as well, because we, we, we're, we're growing the crop in, in a very different way. Um, I've listened, listened to a couple of your, your other podcasts with farmers and we're taking on board all of that, uh, regenerative growing. Um, so we don't plow anymore. We're, we're, we're doing min, uh, no cultivations. We're growing cover crops, so we're putting in nutrients back into the land naturally, um, using clovers in the mix and uh, brassicas with big long tap roots to aerate the soil. Um, and, and obviously, if you're ploughing as well, you're turning up a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. So we're doing lots of things at the front end to uh, to help with that. Um, and it's all about looking after that soil for future gener generations for us. Uh, which we, which we we can do because we're in charge of that and in control of that. Um, so that that that's really really important to us. Um, and then 100% of that goes into our beer and whiskey, which is is incredibly important. Um, where where do you find it? I mean, you find it basically in lots of places now. But I mean, <laughs> uh, the main the main place to find it would be from the distillery itself, okay. Um, okay. which is uh, overlooking Filey Bay, and and the whiskey brand is called Filey Bay for that reason. Um, so you can find Filey Bay uh, on our on our shop online or by visiting us, or indeed uh, we are now in thirteen countries around Europe. We're in Russia, we're in uh, uh, America, and we're really expanding uh, the doors now of, of English single malt. Well, good for you. And and has this spurred? What often happens then is you suddenly get a. Uh, 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 a, a round of pop-up lookalikes. So, have you, is someone next door rapidly building a distillery? <laughs> um, loads of gins, um, yeah. but not in this area. Whiskey, as such, there's some very small ones. Just uh, guys popping up, which is great. We've, we've talked to them. We're helping them as much as we can. 
because uh, what, what we want to make sure is that everybody who gets into producing whiskey does it to the best possible standard for the category as possible. Um, the question about gin, we didn't do gin because um, <clears throat> to actually do gin, you would be buying in a, um, a, a raw material, be it the NGS, the neutral grain spirit, um, and that would be against our ethos because we hadn't grown that crop, we yeah. hadn't grown that, that wheat, um, because we can't actually distill up to 96 uh, ABV from our stills. Uh, whiskey stills are shaped differently and not designed to drive all the flavour out to a neutral level. So we're trying to keep in flavour in, uh, already in the spirit, and that, that's fundamentally the difference between a gin spirit and a whiskey spirit, is that we want oh. to keep those, those fruity notes and those... Um, those delicious bits that that, that whiskey is, is made up of before you put it in the cask. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm loving this. And I could <laughs> definitely talk to you. I get the sense and the feeling that we should probably uh, sit down uh, at the Wold Top Brewery uh, uh, together on a bench with a, a lump of cheese and a couple of bottles and have a chat. But um, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of chivvy you along, David, and I'm going to introduce you to the magical vortex, uh, which is our ability to step through into a new world, which is identical to this world, except that you have the three chances that you already know about to change things about the world of food. And that, you know, I've got a feeling I know where you're going to go with this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to like it. Um, but here's the thing. I will attempt to be vaguely journalistic and argue with you, even though I probably agree 100%. I'll do the best I can to throw a few things under the wheels of progress for your dreams. Um, and uh, you can be as helicopter as you like, but I will ask you to sort of give us examples and anywhere possible that you can tie it back to your own personal experience with, with your business or sure. previous work as an agricultural merchant. That would be fantastic. So um, are you ready to step through the vortex? I'll, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> okay, I'm saving up for some expensive sound effects, but until... Yeah, I was waiting for the big bang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, I'll see what I can do in post-production, but for now, let's just step through the vortex. Let's go. Oh, lovely. We're in. It's nice here. It didn't feel too much of a jolt. It's better than air travel, um, quite frankly. And um, would you please, Mr. David Thompson, give us the first thing that you would change about the world of food? Okay, well, I think we all talk about it a lot, and but I have a different angle on it um, in terms of um, seasonality uh, of produce. And I know a lot of other people have talked about this on on your on your program, but um, I think the problem with not eating seasonal food uh, or indeed local food is lack of knowledge. So I would like to see education start back at school in terms of not just food, but production of food. Um, you know, we come, we've, had a, we've had generations come out of, of school without any knowledge of how to cook, how to source produce, and understand seasonality. So, yeah, I would like somebody really to grab hold of that nettle and push it back into mainstream education. So at least when our youngsters come out, they have a basic idea of, of where products come from and the seasonality of them. Um, because we do, you know, supply and demand. At the end of the day, I turn that round and go, you know, the demand actually forces the supply. So if you don't have that knowledge and you keep buying your strawberry at the wrong time of year, then the suppliers will keep supplying. So I would go from top to bottom, basically, rather than the other way around. 
Mm. Okay, so we've neatly hopped straight over the conduit in the middle there, which is the multiple retailers. And we've yeah. gone, okay, cause and effect, you know, receiver, producer, let's just look directly at that relationship and ignore the middle. I like that because the middle's complicated and, and manipulative. So I, I'm quite, I quite like that. But hang on a minute, because I've got to sort of disagree with you here. Um, okay. Uh, that's all very well for you to crack on about seasonability, uh, seasonality and local produce. Uh, but the world's a very small place these days. Something's in season everywhere all the time. You know, if I want to get a strawberry from, uh, I don't know, wherever it is, uh, and in the middle of, you know, January, and it's not going to end the world, why, why, would, why wouldn't I do that? I mean, you're just a killjoy. What, what's, this, what's the purpose of this season? <laughs> oh, I think... I think it's choice, you know, and I think if, if, it, if it's obvious and we can put the air miles on that strawberry pack, then people can choose uh, what they want to do. Um, but you can't choose unless you have that knowledge and you have that education. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, there will always be somebody who wants to take it regardless. But I would hope with, with a little bit more education in the early years, we may actually not see that demand as high as it is today. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I think um, I think there's an opportunity there to use the price uh, to introduce a sort of tariff system. To say, okay, that's fine. If you want to eat a, a heavily polluting, you know, imported vegetable at a certain time of year, we're not going to stop you, but you have to pay enough to, to reclaim that environmental damage from it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and that and that goes back to the farmer that's growing it. You know, because yeah. they're the ones that miss out. Exactly. Exactly. I see. I knew I was going to find it difficult to argue <laughs> with you on that one. Uh, but um, yeah, so my seasonal kryptonite, because uh, I try really hard, David, I, I, I do try incredibly hard. Um, you know, my kids have both recently been into to their respective schools and said, you should not be putting tuna on the menu. <laughs> Let's be clear about this. And why have we got pineapple? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I'm definitely guilty of creating a couple of... Um, couple of little uh, little thorns in people's sides but here's the thing i'm i'm a hypocrite because uh, as as has definitely reared its head on the uh, on the madam's cast before i'm a bit of a sucker for an aubergine now what's your answer i mean do i just need to pay more for an organic aubergine that comes from the wrong place on the planet and just accept that it's going to be three times the price because that's what it should cost if i want to eat it out of season um, grow it yourself. I mean, we do. Uh, so my, my wife is very much into all sorts of uh, gardening, um, be it vegetables right through to, to, to flowers. But um, I talked to her this morning about uh, aubergine growing and she said, basically, you must remember anything that has a flower needs to be under stress because the flower process is, is created because it wants to regenerate, yeah, re re reproduce itself. Yeah. Um, so she says, don't look after them very well. <laughs> put, put, them in, put, the, put them into your um, warm greenhouse if you have one or your conservatory uh, it, as you plant them. Let them, let them sort of grow uh, in there to start with and then put them outside in the greenhouse um, and keep the pots quite small. You know, let them stress out about life and they will start to reproduce their, their flowers and, and, and the fruiting bodies. So uh, we, we've had aubergines every year that look like they're from, dare I say, a supermarket because yeah. we just don't really look after them very well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I grew one once. I managed to get one to grow in, in, the, in the glass house down in Devon when we lived there. Uh, and I'm just, yeah, I think we might need to wait until the polytunnel's built at the 
new house. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, it is that's possible. a long way down the road. There's a long way. Well, in the meantime, <laughs> can you just plant a couple of extras? I will. I'll send one off to you. <laughs> Brilliant. That's fantastic. Okay, so so point one. Actually, I quite like it because you're right. Seasonality comes up a lot, and you've sort of wrapped localism into that, but the two are inseparable anyway, so I can live with that totally. Um, but I like the idea of taking that back to education because schools get a lot of grief about not teaching kids to cook. And I always sort of put my hand up and go, actually, kids are interested in cooking. So if you're cooking at home and you allow them to get involved with that process, then that will happen at home. So it's generally a case of, um, yes, I agree, they should be taught some basic skills about it at school. Anything the education system can do to support it, that's great. But you're, you're absolutely brilliant with that. I think the best thing you could possibly do is teach kids about how food is grown, where it comes from, and the, and the dangers of doing that on a large-scale, sort of generic basis. I think that would be a, a really great way of changing a few few people's minds. So um, point number one, uh, officially activated, and uh, there we go. Oh, the world's looking better already. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there's, some, there's some positive spin-offs from that. I, I quite like the look of those. Well done. Okay, great. Well, you knew you weren't going to get an argument from me on that one, so that one was super easy anyway. Um, right. <laughs> anything you'd like to add to point one before we move on to point two? No, I think I think it answers. It would help answer a lot of a lot of questions. I, I can always remember um, asking a youngish um, school kid quite a few years ago now if they knew where milk came from and when the answer was the bottle that was quite worrying so <laughs> so I just think it'd be really nice to reconnect with with how uh, we produce food yeah yeah I, that's it yeah uh, ultimately I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there it is um I mean I, the other thing the flip side of that as well is you know why would a child who lives in a city and has never seen a dairy cow understand that milk comes from a cow unless you teach them yeah, 100%. I'm with you there, totally with you there. Uh, and of course, increasingly these days, brackets, milk, end of brackets, uh, or inverted commas, doesn't come from a large lactating bovine either. Um, <laughs> I think we need to protect the word milk in some way so that it actually means uh, a mammary excretion rather than potentially something else. Um, but yeah. there we go. That's, that's, that's me. Hang on, I'm trying to change things and we've only got three. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's your turn anyway. So, okay, we'll move on to point number two before I steal point number one off you. Right, number two. Um, misuse of product descriptions. Oh, so no. in our industry in particular, um, in the drinks industry, we have lots of products that are named after a place or an area. Um, I'm not going to go into detail, name or shame anybody. That's but, good because we don't have very good solicitors here. <laughs> <laughs> but I get very frustrated when something is called after a place or a city or a town when it's not even made there. Um, and even if it is made there, um, it's not produced there. So what I mean by that is the raw materials are either all imported or, um, or produced in a completely different uh, place in the country. Well, here's one that's so big, we can give it as an example because it's global now uh, and I can't imagine anyone getting, you know, too, uh, too, you know, too upset that they're straight on the hotline to their lawyer. <laughs> I bet um, I know you're going to say here. Cheddar cheese. Ah, uh, I was going to say Yorkshire tea. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, I mean, lawyers or no, Yorkshire folk are renowned for being fiercely defendant about these things, so I'll just keep quiet about that. Um, what I think... You know, unless it's cave aged in a 
in 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 the cheddar gorge. It's not a cheddar, is it? It's a farmhouse cheese. And well, yeah. that's that's right. Yeah, and it, it is frustrating because if, for example, we we have everything ring fenced and everything's produced, handled, it doesn't leave this site until it's in a retail pack, you know, and and I think that sort of provenance over your not just your raw materials, but but. Um, the area and the people you're using to, to produce the product. Uh, that's why we call the Spirit of Yorkshire. And um, I think, it sh so the names you, you choose should be backed up by by fact and, um, and not hidden behind. So I think that's really important in terms of a brand um, and its longevity, really. So is Yorkshire tea not, not, not at least... Well, I imagine it's blended no, it over blended here, which is yeah, it is. I mean, there's okay. no, there's no, um, but it obviously, is, it, that's a brand that's, that's, that's put Yorkshire on the map globally, and it's absolutely done a fantastic job. I don't think they pretend it's made uh, in terms of growing the leaf in Yorkshire. I mean, that's an absolute obvious. But there are a lot of other uh, producers who use use um, area names on their products, uh, with clearly trying to tell people it's from this area, and it's not. But could you grow tea in Yorkshire? I imagine you could have a good go at it. <laughs> but <laughs> no, I, don't, I, I honestly don't think at the moment we don't have the, uh, the climate for it. After saying that, we're now producing some fantastic uh, sparkling wines and, um, uh, in this area. So, you know, things are moving on. The climate's changing. So who knows? Well, that's exciting. That's exciting. Um, okay. Well, uh, ooh, hold on. Okay. So now this did come up with a distiller before, actually. Uh, this came up with a very nice um, man from the Norfolk Gin uh, Company who makes right. a bathtub gin using a neutral grain spirit and um, lots of other stuff. And he was he was complaining about things being labelled a spirit when they're not. And uh, yeah, and these sort of fake farms that seem to crop up on the, the front yes. of labels for stuff, which when a little bit of tiny little bit of scratching reveals as much disillusionment as your average scratch card um, will on the surface there. So. Okay, what are we gonna what are we gonna call point number two? Because you can have this geographically protected, you know, name, can't you? Um, yeah. You know, I can't remember what that's called. You, you know, GI. There you go. There <laughs> Ge you go. Thanks. Geographic indicator. Yeah. There you go. Geographic indicator. And um, uh, we don't necessarily need to go that far for this. But uh, what? How should how should we encapsulate it? Can you give it a jaunty tagline for me? <laughs> that's put me on the spot, isn't it? <laughs> Well, don't call it something it's not. There don't you go. call it. There you go. You can rely on a Yorkshireman to come up with a simple answer. Don't call it something it's not. I like it. That's perfect. That that says it like it is, doesn't it? That, that, that's put it on the front of the tin. No doubt about it. Um, okay, I'll try and argue with you. Uh, that's not going to go very well, is it? Um, Okay, well, you know, it's fine for you to say that, but what if I've got my labelling plant and bottling plant in Yorkshire and I buy, um, I buy mixed whiskies on the open market from Scotland, re-blend them and call them the Yorkshire whisky? What's wrong with that? Uh, I just think it's misleading people. Um, yeah, you're right. You know, it's, ob <laughs> it's obviously, yeah. <laughs> it, it's not from Yorkshire. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've fallen at the very first hurdle. <laughs> got, it, got it completely wrong. Okay, fine. Don't call it something. It's not. I might register that as a web domain. That sounds great. We just get everyone to fling up their examples of um, of things that stuff called that it isn't. Um, like, uh, yeah, well, there's lots of it out there, isn't there? I, I was recently trying to buy 
uh, I was trying to buy some some chocolates to give to the school bus drivers, uh, you know, for the kids, right? And this is not a, um, this is not something I want to spend a hundred pounds on. Okay, this is something that I, I just want to get them a nice little something for a Christmas, you know, gift. Uh, because we're nice people and we want to thank the bus driver, right? That's that's normal. Um, and I set myself the challenge of buying a box of chocolates without any palm oil in. Okay. Did you find some? No. <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> not in the not in the shops nearby, shall we say? I'm resorting to an online purchase. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think the further away that stuff is, the, the, the worse it's getting, which takes us nicely back to your your point number one. Um, okay, fine. So don't call it something it's not. Uh, that you know, that's it. There we go. The whole world. I saw the whole world ripple then as we activated <laughs> that change. Um, and so one of the things for me that I would definitely call into that is completely outside of the world of food, which obviously is beyond our remit. But I, I sort of struggle with the concept of, you know, uh, of all these sort of hybrid cars. I mean, how driving a heavy generator around with a petrol engine attached to it is uh, more environmentally friendly. I don't really know, but there we go. Yeah, <clears throat> I think I think people tend to uh, jump on taglines, don't they? And, and that's another bit of a bugbear of mine as well is... Uh, you know, we all have to be seen to be green and, and doing something positive for the, uh, for the climate, which is absolutely right. But there are certain things that people pick up, like the car, uh, the, the electric car, or, or indeed every bottle you buy will plant a tree. Um, it's such a broad um, thing to say. Plant what tree? What variety? Yeah. How long is it going to take to grow? Is it deciduous or not? And why is that uh, yeah. Well, yeah, why is it a good thing? Uh, why does it take 30 years before it actually is into its prime and actually doing the job it's planted to do? Mm. There are so many things we can do in the short term that are so much more positive to, well, to the environment that, that um, isn't led by marketing. Um, I think that's another big bugbear, but anyway, that's, a, that's probably another point. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it is. I think I'm, I opened the door on that one with the electric car, so I'll, I'll let you in. And actually, I think it's worth exploring, you know, just for a moment, because for me, it always feels a little bit like we're treating a symptom. Uh, so that's, if that same company, whoever they are, whatever they were doing, so every bottle of this you buy will plant a tree. If on the back of the bottle it said, you know, every 10,000 bottles of this we sell enables us to remove this on this next unsustainable practice from our supply chain. I would be much more yeah. inclined to buy that because I like you would be very huffy and go, well, if it's a sick spruce that you've plowed up a peat bog to plant, then I, you know, I'm exactly. in my money, you know? So <laughs> actually I think the challenge there is for the marketeers to find something, you know, a bit deeper, a bit more positive. Greenwash has been going kicking around for 25 years now. A lot of us have, can, can spot it coming from a very long way away, um, and you know I think um, I think that needs to go as well. But that, yeah, as you said, we call that point two. We'll, that's two point one. We'll, get, no, okay. we'll, we'll <laughs> sneak fine. it in. We'll sneak it in. Okay, brilliant. Right now, you've got to be really careful because there's no wishing for more wishes in this scenario. Okay, um, you you have to you have to give me a third and final thing that you'd like to change. Uh, about the world of food. And it's um, just so you know, it's not allowed to be everyone should pay £700 for a bottle of three year old malt. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, yeah, I, I, this is, is probably not something I want to change, but more encourage, uh, I think. And um, 
it's sort of a better collaboration with local producers to to with the same sort of ethos. Um, for example, I know our sister company, the World Top uh, Brewery, is is cited very close to us. And and what what we have done with them is they they came to us and said we want to make a a barrel aged beer. So we we emptied our uh, first fill casks. Uh, um, of our spirit and, and kept that spirit aside. We then gave them the casks for nine, 10 months and they put in their award-winning um, Scarborough Fair IPA, uh, brought that out as a barrel-aged beer that increased in ABV up to uh, 9%. Um, hang on, hang on, hang barrel on. So, wave. so I've got to stop you, I've got to stop you. But you need to explain to the idiot at the other end of the internet how it's gone up in alcoholic volume. Oh, because there's alcohol in the wood. So wood is a natural oh. product. It so soaks up the alcohol in the wood. Okay. Um, so as it as it releases back into the beer, it lifts the ABV. I mean, it was a strong beer anyway. So, but it will add ABV to to the beer. But also Amazing. those lovely woody vanilla uh, flavors coming out of the oak from from uh, the previous occupant, which was our our uh, whiskey. Um, so you've got this lovely collaboration going on where they've got a beer they wouldn't have had without the distillery. We then take the cask back and refill it with the liquid we took out and we end up with an IPA finished uh, whiskey, um, which Love is it. great because it's got lovely uh, sort of undertones of, of hoppiness in a whiskey, which is quite unusual, but very, very different. So those sort of collaborations, I think, are ones that we really want to do more of. Um, we do work with other producers locally. Talking about your chocolate guy, there's a local guy who makes uh, a bean-to-bar chocolate um, in Sheffield, and we do lots of whiskey tastings and pairing with the chocolate. Um, same with um, smoked fish producers near Beverly. So there's all these collaborations going on, really showcasing what we can do in our particular areas um, to enhance each other's businesses uh, and flavours as well. There's so many different flavours uh, that come very well together by doing those collaborations. Oh, and that creative process then just drives itself, doesn't it? And if you include in that the positive changes of reuse and lower input, um, that's fantastic. So um, what I really like about that, that little story that you've given us as part of your point, uh, point three to encourage better collaboration with other local businesses, is if we take that right back to you and your your model you've got the farmer producing in the most sustainable way he can the malting barley you've got the brewery making the beer the beer going to the distillery to be turned into whiskey the whiskey coming out of the barrel after three years and having beer kept in it and then out goes the beer the whiskey comes back in i mean this is just this is fantastic and all the way along there you're having these ideas and and that ability to know that it's all so locally tied together just then sort of drives that engine of creativity i think quite often the idea to take it back to your point one the the excuse that's used for a lack of seasonality and a lack of locality is that people want variety well you know i think that this example you've just given us uh, for your point three just goes to show that variety will appear when you start to challenge your preconceptions within the industry in which you're working Absolutely. And it shouldn't be done just for making a different product. It should be done for the right reasons. Um, and the right reasons are exactly that. You know, we're, we're, we're using things again. 
we're recycling them, um, we're getting different sort of flavours out of them and, and, and then producing a different product. And, that, and I think that's the important way around to look at it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and I, I think there's lots of people out there, be it large companies and small companies, who can benefit from that sort of collaboration. Um, yeah, <laughs> it just makes sense to me. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, I can't argue with that at all. There's no argument to be had. Um, <clears throat> I just, you know, I just wish I'd been there uh, to taste the beer and then the whiskey. I, I like the idea of a, uh, this is just the chefy part of my brain kicking off now, but the, the idea of a hoppy flavour in a malt whiskey is quite interesting. Yeah, and I think when you, whiskey's amazing thing. I mean, if I had a pound for everybody who said to me, I don't like whiskey, and then, they walk out of the distillery and they've got two bottles in the hand. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. once you've understood the process that goes into making a great single malt um, and the flavour profiles you get from the casks. So uh, the ones I was talking about were ex-bourbon casks that would go to the brewery. But as you, as you said right at the very beginning, we use loads of different casks from, from Spain. We've got Oloroso, we've got uh, Pedro Jimenez. Uh, we've got Muscatel. We've got all these beautiful sort of uh, flavours coming out of the casks. Um, and and it's, it's just a, a great way of building uh, different profiles. And, and the beer cask is just one side of it. Um, but that's the beauty of it. Once people understand what's gone into making that product, we'll find one that you enjoy. And I think that's our challenge, you know. We put that on us. Yeah, yeah, quite right. Quite right. Oh, amazing, amazing. Well, the next time I'm in a pub in Yorkshire, I'm going to have to keep my eyes open uh, very clearly uh, and see if I can find some of these wonderful things to try. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so um, from the point of view of the main drive of the show, we've we've done it. I mean, you've whistled through those in no time at all, uh, probably because of my inability to argue with you, but um, we've got uh, <clears throat> seasonality slash localism of produce with a with a strong strong second banner that is uh, that should be focused on education uh, at school and at home about where food comes from and the processes involved uh, I think I've got that right yeah and then number two it's just number two is just fantastically Yorkshire uh, don't call it something it's not <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, uh, uh, you should have a word with the, I can't believe, I can't believe it's not, it's not butter. Uh, we should have a chat with them about that. Um, and then uh, encourage better collaboration with other local businesses. And from a grassroots, I totally, that's something that, um, that I think small scale producers do really, really, really well. Uh, you know, certainly when I lived down in Devon within a, you know, within a 10 mile radius, I could get line caught fish from the local fishermen. I could get a variety of different farmed organic vegetables from different places. I could get, you know, organic free range eggs. I could get pork, you know, that were grown outside and skipped about. I could have, you know, retired mm. dairy beef. I could get all of those things. Um, and, and if you phoned around and got it right, you could get everything dropped off at one place. You know, so I think those guys are all collaborating together. And then, you know, later on in the summer, you'd go and eat a whole, you know, roasted pig at the vegetable garden. You know, I mean, there's a lot of that that goes on at that sort of, I, I'm tempted to call it grassroots level agriculture, but actually it's not. It's, it's, it's hugely effective agricultural system 
you know, coming from a mixed farming area that works really very well. And I don't want to sort of patronise it and call it grassroots because it's been around for a very long time and it functions very, very well. Thank you very much. We just need more people to be doing it. We do. Yeah. Um, so that, that takes you number three. Well, that's it. I mean, you've, you've made the world, as far as I'm concerned, a much better place. And uh, we're going to, we're going to unfortunately now have to step out of this vastly improved world you've created and back into the humdrum one that you're working hard to change uh, in your real life. Uh, hats off to you for that. It's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting model you've got. I wonder, have you won any awards um, for what you're up to? We have lots of awards, yeah. So, I won't go on. I won't go on about them, but yeah, I mean, but but that's that's more about the team and the people here than it is about, you know, uh, me. It's, it's it's just brilliant to have such a strong team behind us, and they're all from this area. You know, we haven't uh, had to look any any further than, than locally to to employ people. So we have um, over twenty five people on the books now. Um, at the distillery and, and very similar up at the brewery so you know we, we've got a business that that's that's very much about the people in the area as much as it is about the product brilliant i'm liking that i'm liking that a lot okay well i'm going to give you the um, madam's cast uh, award for being a tolerant participant uh number one we're going to step back through into the real world and then we're going to have a little bit of fun to sort of uh, tail end the show for us. Uh, um, come with me. Come on. We're going back in now. I know you want to stay there, but you're coming with me. Um, and we'll, we'll settle down back in the real world. It's a bit of a jolt, but it's okay. And you get three remaining tasks um, okay. that, that are left for you to do. Um, the first is to choose a food book that you would have in a desert island type scenario. That doesn't have to be a real desert island. You know, it might just be you've locked yourself away for an hour of peace and quiet. But it's a food book that you would take with you. And um, something, <laughs> I wonder what this might be, <laughs> something to drink while you're reading it. And then if you would like to, um, you are welcome to nominate a future guest on the Madam's Cast. They don't have to be um, alive dead they can be real fictitious they can be whatever you like they don't you know we're not going to turn up and manhandle them into the back of a van and hold them at gunpoint and make them do it it's just a it's just a recommendation process um go okay. on start with it start with your book because that seems to be the one that everyone struggles with the most um right okay i mean for me i absolutely adore cooking outside um you know as soon as a spot of sun out there we're out barbecuing or producing something so the sort of people who really um, got me sort of into that, if you like, originally the Keith Floyd, the Rick Stein uh, guys, because they brought the sort of elements of where they were into the food. Um, you know, I always remember Keith Floyd standing on a boat rocking sideways as his curry slapped everywhere. That's just brilliant because it adds the moment, you know, it adds the, the sort of uh, the context to what he was trying to, and the culture to what he was trying to produce. But uh, I, I guess the modern equivalent to that would be the hairy bikers for me. Um, when they do the Mediterranean adventure, um, the things they're getting uh, up to and, and the people they meet is as much uh, as important as the food they cook. So I would say uh, Mediterranean adventures by the hairy bikers. Oh, brilliant. And you've done it. You've managed to do it again. That's another book I haven't actually got. So I'm going to have to go and, uh, go and find it. It sounds Sounds fascinating. I mean, I always enjoyed their programs when I've caught a bit bit of them. Um, 
Are they from your neck of the woods? They're sort of a little bit further, well, so the northeast, yeah. So okay. there's a Newcastle, uh, one of them is from the Newcastle area, but also I'm a very keen motorcyclist, so they have two of my favourite subjects. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. You're a motorcyclist as well. I'm beginning to get a good picture of you. Um, this is this is fascinating. Okay, so hairy bikers. All right, can you pick one recipe from there that you'd like to do? That's a massive surprise, everyone. I haven't. You know, let anyone know that I was going to ask you that. I just thought, well, you've obviously chosen a good book that you love, so it'd be nice to see what your your favourite recipe is. I think they made a frittata on the on the edge of a cliff once, <laughs> and I think uh, it was just the, the backdrop, literally the backdrop, that uh, you kept thinking they're going to lose that over the edge. Um, <laughs> as I, as I say, that I've cooked that, and it's it is fantastic. It's lovely and fresh, and um, so yeah, um, that would be one I'd go for. Okay, excellent. Well, there we go. Um, that's well navigated. Uh, so we've got the Hairy Bikers Mediterranean Adventures, and I've written here Cliffhanger Frittata. So I don't know whether that is exactly what it is. We should have done this. We should have done that last. We should have made that the last item of the of the podcast. Never mind. Okay. So uh, <laughs> excuse me while I practice my surprised face. Um, what what drink would you have while you were while you were enjoying reading that book? <laughs> well, I imagine if I'm on a desert island, it's going to be hot. Yeah. Um, so if it was going to be a, a sort of a, a drink for that environment, I'd probably go for World Top Scarborough Fair IPA. Um, nice. And I have to add in there with a chaser of the IPA finished whiskey. Well, you're going to have to depth. You're only allowed one glass. So you're going to have to depth <laughs> charge it. Is that okay? <laughs> That's fine. I can do that. <laughs> Bet you can. I bet you can. Scarborough Fair. IPA. IPA. Yeah. Okay, so, um, all right. I've got a version of Scarborough Fair on an early Simon and Garfunkel LP, I think. Somewhere. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll listen to that. That's about as close as I'm going to get to Scarborough for a while, I think. Um, but that would that, that sounds great. Um, IPA is one of those, isn't it? It's sort of suddenly, you know, beer. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how old you are. I'm going to make a horrendous assumption that you're roughly same age as me and we won't you know we won't say what that is but we'll, we'll go with that <laughs> and beer when i was growing up was one of two things it was either lager or it was bass and as a result i'm just going to disprove the, the thing i've just said but as a result i used to drink a lot of guinness and ipa was not something that ever appeared and no. now thank god for the resurgence in real beer but now you can get so many different ipas and apas it's just tremendous yeah it is and and the story about IPA always fascinates me. I mean, obviously, it's Indian Pale Ale. It was produced at high strength and high um, input of hops to uh, allow it to travel to India for the troops. Mm -hmm. So the reason behind that flavour and that strength was a practical one. The, they were going to water it down when it got there, um, but they loved it so much at the high strength, they just kept it. So there you are, a little history of IPA. Good. Thank, thank goodness for leaving it where it was and not watering it down. No, no watering of the beer here, please. Now, um, okay, all right, so this is naughty because it's the wrong end of the show, but I'm going to ask anyway. So uh, I understand, obviously, that the brewery is a different thing, but one of the things that I know with breweries is that they struggle to get hops locally. So have you started a hop-growing project as well? <laughs> they have certainly tried to grow hops, but we're, we're still in the sort of problem of, of being in Yorkshire on a, on a hillside. Um, we do need the sun. And, you know, as I say, grapes have been grown here now. So, you know, we can try again. They don't like wind either. And again, we're stuck up in the, in the middle of nowhere. So um, 
we've definitely tried and we'll continue to try. Mm, mm. There's been interesting work being done with other bittering agents, actually. Um, people sort of taking the idea of hops, but finding other things with similar profiles uh, that, yeah. that do either grow locally or are a sort of... Um, uh, sort of more you know more sustainably farmed products nearer to them so there's quite a lot of interesting stuff going on with that which i'm sure you will be well aware of like for example i made this year a bottle of um a bottle of bjork which is a, a scandinavian uh, drink which basically you get vodka or, or spirit and you put little twigs of birch in it in the spring oh, wow. when they're, they're when they're red just before they burst into bud and you put that in there and you get this amazing, weird, bitter, slightly soapy kind of spirit out of it, um, which I'm then trying to be very clever and re-sweeten it with the birch syrup, uh, which is sort of heading towards a kind of a birch old-fashioned in some way or another, but it's not quite there yet. It's an experimental process. But then I wonder if maybe you could use birch twigs to bitter your beer instead of hops. I'm sure there would be, and I, and I think that's the beauty of uh, being in control of, of what you put in there. You know, you can yeah. choose these and experiment, and uh, that's that's part of the fun of, of being in the drinks industry. Uh, that experimental phase of trying new things. Um, you know, we, we we going back to square one. We you know our respect for traditional ways absolutely overrides nearly everything, but also we 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 do experiment a little bit as well, and uh, and I think that's the exciting part. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Well, look, I mean, uh, <clears throat> you still have to nominate someone uh, to come <laughs> on. Um, and I feel like I could talk to you, we've managed sort of nearly an hour already, but I feel like I could go back now and talk to you even more about the farming processes that underpin this. I'm sure that there's fascinating heat capture stories from your distillery. Um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that you've got some amazing detailed environmentals going on that I would love to have, have a deeper dive in that we can't <laughs> really, of course you have, that we can't, that we can't really touch on in this, in this time, but I'm sure they're all over your website and that, do you do tours at your distillery? We do, yeah. Um, so yeah, we do <clears throat> three tours a day, um, seven days a week. So right. yeah, if you jump onto uh, Spirit of Yorkshire website, you can book those, um, or you can just call in and, and see us. Uh, we've got a coffee shop on site. We're making all our own producers again under the same sort of ethos. So, um, yeah, we, 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 uh, we had over 35,000 people visitors um, the year before COVID. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to, to bring people here, as I say. And once they've seen how you do things, uh, their sort of knowledge increases. And, yeah, it's, it's great to see. Oh, well, look, um, I, you know, it sounds like you're doing incredible stuff uh, down there, David. And I'm delighted that you, someone put me in touch with you to, to have you on to talk about your product and change your things about the world of food. And I know that um, I know that I shall certainly be on to you if I have any questions further, further afield. Or if you're passing uh, northeast Scotland on your motorcycle sometime, come and say it. hi. I will. Um, but before you do, can you drop someone in it for us? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you mentioned Tom, Tom Meller, he's, he's my business partner, and also his daughter, who uh, Kate Blunt, um, Bolshin, sorry, she, she runs a brewery now, so she's oh. the next generation of, of, uh, of beer maker, and uh, I think you'd get a great deal out of, uh, out of Kate in terms of what they're doing with the beer and how they're making it in a very sustainable way, yeah. 
Oh, well, that would be great because then we can tell a few more of the stories involved with your story. That'd be fantastic. Okay, well, look, I'll, I'll do my best to get in touch with Kate. Um, I might be on to you to see if we can blag her into coming on at a later date. I think all sure. that remains for me to do is to thank you, not only for, for being such an erudite and clear, well-spoken host and putting, uh, guest and putting across your, your points so well, but also for giving up your time, but fundamentally for, for refusing to do stuff um, in the way that you didn't want to do it. <laughs> well, that's a Yorkshire in us. <laughs> <So. laughs> well, you can say that. You can say that. <laughs> I definitely can't. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a fantastic episode of the Man's Cast. Thank you very much for coming on. Everybody, make sure you go and check out the Spirit of Yorkshire Distillery online. Find out a bit more. And if you're passing that way, stop in for a beer and a, a, a wee dram. Uh, oh, do you, have a, do you have a local name for a small drop of whiskey then? Not yet, but we can challenge your listeners to come up with one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyone can come up with one. Get it in here. Brilliant. All right. Well, listen, David, lovely chatting to you. We'll catch you soon. All the best. Absolute pleasure, Tim. Thank you.